Good morning again, Lakeshore. We're so glad that you're with us. We welcome all of you at our Smyrna campus. We're glad you're here and everybody that's joining us online. We're glad that you've connected with us that way today. This is the weekend. We celebrate the life and legacy of Dr. King, and we're so grateful for his life and his witness and for the uh, advances that were made in the area of civil rights in our country, uh, largely due to his effort and those who worked with him. And we know that there's much work still to be done, and we pray for continued progress in that area. Uh, certainly uh, an example in a life worth honoring and celebrating. Today we are continuing our series that we're in called Changed. And what we've been doing in this series is looking at individuals in Scripture who had encounters with Jesus that radically changed their lives for the better. As we started the new year, we've, we've talked about the fact that lots of people say, I'm going to do better this year. This is going to be a good year. Uh, I've got all these things I'm going to improve. I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to quit smoking. I'm going to get in shape. We've got, I'm going to get my finances in order. We've got all these, these great ideas about how we want to change our lives. But we've learned that lasting change has to start from within. And that in order to not only begin the process, but continue and sustain the transformation that needs to happen. We need a power greater than ourselves. And as we've learned through looking at how Jesus changed individuals when they encountered him, he is that source of power. He is that one who can bring about the transformation for the better that we're looking for. Sometimes we even think we ought to change a certain way, but Jesus has something else in mind for us. And, and he has a way of directing us when we open ourselves up to him and continue to have encounters with him on a regular basis. So in this series, we began by looking at Nicodemus, a, a man who was changed from rules to relationships, from thinking about legalism all the time and just keeping the letter of the law and understanding that what he really needed beyond that was a real relationship with Jesus Christ himself and that that's what would radically transform him for the better. And then we looked at a guy named Saul, right? What a remarkable transformation in his life. When he encountered Jesus on that road to Damascus, he was going on his way to, to arrest and persecute Christians. And yet, after that encounter with Jesus, he was totally transformed uh, to become not an antagonist anymore of Christianity, but an evangelist for Christ. And later on, changed his name to Paul and was a great missionary leader for the church. And then we looked last week at, at that lady who's known... That's the adulterous woman, right? The woman caught in adultery who was shamed in front of the crowd as they drug her before Jesus and said, the law says we must stone her. What do you say? And of course, he said those famous words, you know, if you're without sin, you cast the first stone. And everybody walked away. And then Jesus stood up and looked at the woman eye to eye. And she said, where are your, he said, where are your accusers? And she said, there, there are none. He says, well, I don't condemn you either, but go and leave your life of sin. Leave the immorality of the way you've been living, which is what repentance is in Scripture. Turn away from that and turn to the way of life that I know God wants for you. You see, there was this call to change, to transformation in her life. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world, right? But in order for that to happen, that transformation, that turning away from sin is part of that process. And so he calls us to change. And today, we're going to look at another example. We're going to examine what was really one of the most unlikely encounters with Jesus that we read about in Scripture. And we're talking about what's usually referred to as the woman at the well. 
okay? It's recorded for us in John chapter 4. If you want to be opening up your Bibles or pulling it up on your smartphone or tablet, we'll be putting some of these verses up on the screen for you. The encounter between Jesus and this woman at the well was very unlikely. And even when it did happen, this lady was very skeptical of Jesus at first. And I'm sure that maybe sitting in the audience today, maybe listening at home or later on listening to, to the podcast, there'll be people listening with skepticism. They're just not sure about this Jesus guy. They're not sure about having an encounter with him and how that would, would affect them in a good way. They're, they're not so sure it would be good to encounter Jesus. And some of them are making every effort not to encounter Jesus. And that wouldn't be you because you're here or you're listening uh, to the message in some form. And, and, and that means you're not one of those skeptics that, that has eliminated the possibility that you need to find out more about Jesus. You're still open to the possibility, even though you're skeptical, that maybe Jesus has something to offer that you need to hear. And so I want us to see in this encounter the progression that takes place between the initial meeting that this woman has with Jesus with all of her skepticism and how through the process of encountering Jesus, everything changes for her for the better. The first thing we look at in this story is that this lady was skeptical, but she was willing to listen to Jesus. She was skeptical, but willing to listen. Let's pick up in John 4 verse 1. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. Now, I've often wondered why that note was put in there, but, but I've got a feeling I know because I've watched human nature after this, and, and God already knew our nature. He created us. If Jesus had actually baptized any of these people, they probably would have all felt superior to anybody else who had ever been baptized by anybody else, right? Oh, who, Peter baptized you? That's pretty good, but Jesus baptized me. <laughs> One step up, right? I don't know if that's the case, but there are a lot of theories on that. But, but that's my theory, and uh, uh, you can disagree with me if you want to be wrong. It's okay. So. <laughs> but it says, since he, he knew this, he says in verse 3, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. And that next verse is a key verse. It says, now he had to go through Samaria. Well, technically speaking, no, he didn't have to go through Samaria. Uh, you can route your trip most any way you want. Uh, a lot of uh, times I route my trip in ways I didn't even plan. Uh, I end up making turns I didn't plan to make, and I go differently. And, but I always end up where I needed to be, eventually. <laughs> So Ann says, I get lost. I say, I'm going on adventures <laughs> all the time. You never know what you're going to see. And the truth is, Jesus is in a Jewish culture, and he's seen as a Jewish teacher. And his disciples were all Jews. And the Jews and the Samaritans were, were not groups of people that got along. There was great prejudice between the two. And it went both ways. The Jews hated the Samaritans, but the Samaritans just as much hated the Jews. Because of so much baggage, so much bad history that had led up to, to this time where Jesus is on the scene. 
See, the Jews hated the Samaritans because they, they saw them as people who weren't true and loyal to, and loyal to, to Judaism and, and, and to being the chosen set-apart people of God because they had intermarried with people that were not of the Jewish faith and, and, and they were outcast because of that. And then the Samaritans hated the Jews because of how mistreated they were by the Jews. The Samaritans had even built their own temple uh, in the area there, uh, not at the place where the Jewish temple was built in Jerusalem. They had built one on, on another mountain there that she'll refer to in this story where they thought they should worship because they weren't accepted by the Jews and they wanted to have their own separate place. And they had actually, uh, hundreds of years before this encounter, they had had the Jews had torn that temple down. You see, there was great animosity between these two groups of people. And as we look at the division in our world today and the animosity between groups in our world today, this story can really teach us some really good lessons about what Jesus wants when it comes to how we need to change our hearts, our lives, how we look at people and interact and deal with people in our culture today. And I can assure you it's not with anger and animosity and bitterness. That's not the way Jesus interacted with anybody from any race or culture or background. So let's look at it. It says he had to go through Samaria. Actually, most of the Jews would take a different route. Uh, here he was going from Galilee. Uh, uh, he left Judea. I mean, he's going back to Galilee. Uh, and he's going from the south to the north. And if you look at a map, the straight shot would be right through Samaria. That, that would be the shortest way. It's where the best roads were to get there the fastest way. Now, if you're like me, I use GPS, but I use it as a challenge, right? Uh, if it says this will take you one hour and 30 minutes, my goal is one hour, 15 minutes at least, okay? Uh, I want to get there as fast as I can. If I'm trying to go somewhere, I, I want to get there as quickly as I can. Now, I try not to get pulled over for speeding and all that stuff, but I still want to get there as fast as I can. And, and if you were trying to do that, going on the route Jesus would have gone on would have been straight through Samaria, the fastest way, the easiest way, the quickest way to get there. But most Jews wouldn't go that way because they had begun to teach years before this that to even have contact with a Samaritan would make you unclean as a Jew. So if you had contact with them, you would have to go through a ceremonial cleansing and you wouldn't be able to serve in the temple or the temple courts until you went through that cleansing. Because you've been tainted by a Samaritan. And so they, on this trip, would have gone right, going north, cross the Jordan River, go up that side of the Jordan, away from Samaria, cross the Jordan River again, north of Samaria, to get back over to where they needed to be. Way out of the way, crossing the Jordan River twice, when they didn't even have to cross it once to make this trip. But almost every good Jew would take that route instead of the one right through Samaria. It's kind of like in our culture today, when you're walking down the street and you see somebody that you don't want to have contact with, you you go a little further over to the side, or you cross over to the other side of the street. Well, they went further than that. They didn't just get on the other side of the street. They went across the river and up the other side just so they wouldn't have to contact those people that they didn't want to have contact with. But Jesus says, no, I got to go, and I, need to, I, I have to go through Samaria. He had to for other reasons. He didn't have to because there was no other way to get there. 
He didn't have to because that was the only way to get to where he was going. But he had to go through Samaria. It says, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. All right, so it's getting hot. The sun is way up in the sky. Uh, they're out traveling by foot. Uh, so he's hot and he's tired. And here's this well so he can sit by the well and, uh, and relax, rest for a little bit. It says, while he was sitting by the well, verse 7, a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? But in parentheses, John gives us this footnote. His disciples had gone into town to buy food. Now, we don't know all the story on this. We know as they traveled, they had to, to have funds with them. They had a treasurer in the group who happened to be Judas, by the way, was the treasurer for the group. Can you imagine that? The guy that's going to betray Jesus later on. And, and they had money that people would give them and donate to them for their ministry. And as they traveled, they would have to stop in the towns that they traveled to and get supplies along the way. And you can bet when Jesus said we need supplies or they said to Jesus we need supplies, their idea was not to get them at a store in Sychar. Because what would they have to do? Have contact with these what? Samaritans. So I'm sure on this little run into town to get food, they wanted to make it as quick as possible, get the job done and get back, and try not to have any more interaction with these Samaritans than they had to have. They didn't like the idea, I'm sure, that they were shopping in Sychar on the way. Because that meant they were going to probably be unclean for a while. They were going to have to go through a ceremonial cleansing after this, according to their traditional teaching and their minds. That's what they were thinking. Well, while they're in there getting food, this woman comes out. They're, they're on their way to get the food and, and, uh, and then travel back. During that time, this woman comes out uh, to draw water. Now, a lot has been said about her coming at noon to draw water. There, there's a lot of possibilities for why she came out in the middle of the day to draw water. One theory is because of her bad reputation, uh, most people would not come to the well to draw water in the middle of the hottest part of the day. So she felt like maybe if she came at that time of day, nobody else would be around. And because of her reputation, she knew how people talked about her and, and looked down on her. She didn't want to have to be around any of those people. It's possible that that's why she came out at noon to draw water. It could be that she just ran out of water at that time. I mean, sometimes you just got to do what you got to do, right? You out of water, you need water, you have to go get water. So we don't know for sure why she came at that time, except that uh, I am convinced this is no chance meeting. When Jesus, the scripture says he had to go through Samaria, I'm convinced because of his knowledge, uh, he knew that he would have this meeting with this woman. He knew that this encounter would take place, and he wanted it to take place. He planned for it to take place. I hear people all the time talk about, you know, coincidences in their lives. And I'm convinced that there are no coincidences. Everything that I have at one point thought might have been a coincidence, looking back on it now, I can see they were all divine appointments. God had them set up in advance. There were no coincidences. Now, that doesn't mean I'm a robot and that he, he's controlling me with little controllers from heaven. That's not what that means. It means he knows in advance and he plans for and allows for those encounters to take place that need to take place in our lives. The problem is, a lot of times, we're not looking for them. 
we're not paying attention like we need to. When Jesus wasn't caught off guard by this, he was ready. He knew this encounter was going to take place. So, here she is. She's at this well. She's come to draw water. And Jesus says to her, will you give me a drink? And I love the Samaritan woman's response. Uh, I can almost hear a little attitude in it. Uh, you, you can read it the way you want, but here's the way I would read it. You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? The nerve. Right? That may not be the attitude she had, but a lot of Samaritans would have had that attitude. They would have assumed that a Jew was not supposed to be interacting with them because of two things. He's a Jew, and she's a Samaritan, and not just a Samaritan, but a Samaritan what? Woman. You see, in that culture, it was wrong, but this was the culture. A woman was just a little bit higher up than personal property in the order of things. And men were not supposed to interact with women that they weren't related to out in public like that, especially if they were alone. Uh, It was looked down upon. Uh, So you add to that, that not only is she a woman, but she's a Samaritan woman. Not only is he a man, but he's a Jewish man. And here he is interacting with her and asking her for a drink of water. See, Jesus, uh, he didn't ever feel like he had to conform to the social prejudices of his culture. Ever. And yet the church in America does it every Sunday. Week after week after week, we conform to the social prejudices of our culture. We have the black churches and the white churches and the Hispanic churches and the Asian churches and the Arabic churches. We divide up into all of our groups. We can work together. We can go to school together. We can play sports together. But you let it be Sunday morning. We've got to divide up into our groups. That's just the way it's always been. And don't think it's the fault of any one of those groups. The white church has chosen that, but so has the black church chosen that. And so has the Hispanic church chosen that. And so has the Asian church. And on and on the list goes. They've all chosen that because you don't have to choose that. You can change that. Just look around Lakeshore. You can choose for it to be different. But it requires a conscious choice. And it requires grace and mercy in the heart of God. Because that's the way God did things always. The scripture's clear. There's no respect of persons. And there's no uh, uh, Jew or Gentile in the eyes of God. uh, He sees us all as created in his image. All of us. And so Jesus wasn't going to be bound by their man-made divisions and prejudices. He crosses those lines all through his ministry, just like he did here with the woman at the well. You see, this was seen as a racial division in their culture. That's exactly the way it was viewed. The Samaritans were seen as a race or ethnicity within a race that was separate from the Jews and their race and their ethnicity. This was a racial issue in their day. 
And Jesus just blew down the fences and crashed through them. And said, we're not going to have these fences up in my kingdom. We're not. But the woman doesn't understand why he would do this. So Jesus answers her. He, he, he's got her attention and she's, she's interested. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. I love the way he introduces something that would really get her interest. I love the way Jesus did this all the time. When he encountered people, he started with them where they were. A lot of times we don't do that. We find somebody that's outside of Jesus and immediately we're saying, you're going to go to hell if you don't change. We're starting right there. We haven't, haven't gotten to know them. We're not friends with them. We haven't got any relationship with them. But we're already there with those people. No preparation for that statement at all in advance. Jesus didn't start there. Jesus started with, hey, have you heard of this living water stuff? I, I, if you knew who I was, who I, who's asking you for a drink, you would have asked me for a drink because I could give you living water. See, starting where she is, what did she come there to get? water. So he's just picking up right where she is in her life and saying, well, what about living water? Wouldn't you be interested in that? Verse 11, sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. She's probably looking him over and thinking, who is this guy? Talk about living water. He doesn't even have a bucket. He doesn't have a jar. He's got nothing. Talking about giving me living water. He says, are, she says, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? In other words, if you could do something like that, you're greater than my ancestors. But notice also the Samaritans claim the ancestry that's the exact same ancestry as the Jews because it was their ancestry too. Remember, we all have the same ancestry. I don't care what color you are today. I don't care what country of origin you've had. We're all of the same ancestry. We came from dirt. <laughs> Every one of us came from dirt. I don't have to do that genetic test where you swab your mouth and send it off. I know where I came from, dirt. And so did you. But from the dirt came the first human beings, right? Adam and Eve. And everybody came from that origin. By the way, science is beginning to support the idea, as they've done more and more testing, genetic testing, that it all leads back to one source. Imagine that. God might be right after all. So he introduces this idea of living water. She says, well, if you could do something like that, you're greater than any of my ancestors were, and they were great. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water, talking about the well water there that Jacob had provided, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in, in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. There he is with that eternal life thing again, right? Man, this, this water, this is amazing. You drink this water, not only will it quench your thirst, but it'll well up to something that you really are looking for, that everybody wants eternal life. Who doesn't want eternal life? Everybody wants eternal life. That's why we spend so much on medical research and, and try to find cures for diseases, because we don't want to die, right? And he's saying, I've got something to give you that can give you 
this eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Now, she's still thinking a little worldly here. But you got to remember where she's coming from. She's had to live a rough life. We find out more about her life in a little bit here, but she's had a rough life. And that culture especially, it was really a rough life. And uh, she's thinking, I just want my life to be easier. I want it to be better. If you could give me some water like that, that'd be so good. I wouldn't even have to come out here anymore and draw water. Man, that would be great. Maybe you could do that for me. Have you heard something that you thought was too good to be true? I'm thinking that's what that woman's probably thinking. Who is this guy telling me this stuff? No way! I looked at a list, and there's a lot of them out there, some common things that people say that, that are really lies, uh, but they, and if we think about it, they're too good to be true. Let me share a few of them with you. Some assembly required. <laughs> now, what they mean is you better have a full tool kit in your shed and 10 people that have three days to help you to get this thing put together. That's what some assembly requires means. It means every single piece has to be attached and put together somehow. That's what that means. McKee, I'm going to share this one. You might agree. Open wide. This won't hurt a bit. <laughs> McKee, I wouldn't do that to you. But I like it when my doctor says, this might sting a little. It about sends me through the roof. <laughs> yeah, that's stung. You're right. Yeah. This is one of my favorites. Dad, please, I'll feed them. I'll walk them. I'll take care of them. I'll train them. <laughs> Never happens, does it? <laughs> Another one of my favorites. Hello, I'm from the IRS, and I'm here to help you. <laughs> I don't think so. Lois is not in here right now. Okay. Mother's only staying for a few days. You won't even know she's here. <laughs> some things sound too good to be true. And there's some things we ought to be skeptical of, right? I mean, those ads that you see that seem too good to be true, the price they show that you're going to pay for something that just seems unbelievable because it's so much less than anybody else is charging, the job where you could stay at home and make $3 million working three hours a week, you know, too good to be true. And this woman is thinking, I'm pretty skeptical that you're making some claims here. That can't be true. And what it comes down to is this. She started out skeptical about what he was saying, but what it led into was the second thing on your outline. She was skeptical of Christ's identity. She was skeptical of who this guy was that's saying these things. I mean, the claims are outrageous. So who is this guy that so confidently is making these claims about living water that will well up to eternal life? It's good to have some skepticism about claims that seem so great. But the good thing about the skepticism that she had is, like we already saw, she was skeptical, but she was willing to listen. And now that she's skeptical of who this guy is, she is willing to listen more to find out more about who this guy is. 
In verse 16, it goes on in this encounter. He told her, go call your husband and come back. <laughs> Jesus knew what he was doing. He, he, he's so, so amazing here about how he handles this woman. She said, uh, I have no husband. She thought that would settle the issue. I mean, she probably had this pat answer she gave to a lot of people. See, in that culture, uh, you didn't live with anybody outside of marriage. That was totally unacceptable. And God's word taught that it was unacceptable. And, and even the Samaritans knew that and followed that practice, generally speaking. So even in her own culture, she would have been an outcast to be living with somebody that she wasn't married to. But it's more than just that. Listen to what Jesus says to her. You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had how many? Five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. <laughs> he said, technically, you are telling me the truth. You don't have a husband. You know how you can lie without saying it totally? By just not saying everything? Well, she's lying by not revealing everything. She was telling the truth when she said, I don't have a husband, but she wasn't telling her whole truth of where she was in her life. She's had five husbands. And even among the culture of the Samaritans, that was, that was a lot to have been divorced five times. But now she's living with somebody that she's not married to, which is also against the teaching of God's Word. And so she's gone through five divorces. She's living in, in a sinful relationship outside of the will of God. And she knows it. And she's probably felt guilt about it and shame about it. And that's why she hid it with her first answer. I mean, why else would you hide it unless you feel some guilt and shame about it? See, that's why she's hiding it. A lot of us have stuff in our lives that we feel guilt and shame about, don't we? Probably all of us have some things that we feel some guilt and some shame. And if you don't, you should. Because the Bible says we've all sinned. And we ought to feel guilt. And we ought to feel ashamed that Jesus had to pay that price for us on the cross that he had to pay. There is some healthy aspect to guilt and shame. I'm not talking about the kind of shame that, that cripples you and not allows you to go on in life and accept grace and mercy and forgiveness. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about I'm so ashamed that he had to do that for me. I wish I had never done that. That caused him not to die on the cross for me, for that sin. That's a healthy thing. It's part of the motivation not to go out and keep on sinning anymore. Well, he says some things about her, and she had to have been totally puzzled by that. Have you ever met someone that knew more about you than you thought they should know, and it kind of freaked you out a little bit? I have. Uh, I, I had somebody visit uh, here at Lakeshore who knew my name. He knew my wife's name, uh, knew the staff members and their names. And, and I said, have you ever been here before? And he said, no. It freaked me out. Now, I know in today's world, that's a little easier because we've got the Internet. We've got a website. and You can Google people and all that stuff. You can do some research and find out. But it always reminds me when I read this story about an episode of Andy Griffith. Andy Griffith's show is one of my favorite shows of all time. And in season one, there was an episode called A Stranger in Town. I want you to watch just a little clip from that real quick. Stranger, just get off. Looks like he's heading this way. 
Let me just get this little Pike's Peak right here. You want anything on your head? Yeah, hair! <laughs> Hi. Hello, Andy. Floyd. Howdy. What you doing? Oh, we're just giving Barney a haircut. Well, make it a good one. Deputy Sheriff's got to look neat. <laughs> How's your rheumatism, Floyd? Usually acts up about this time of year. Huh? Oh, yes, it does. Well, I hope you feel better so you can throw a few horseshoes. <laughs> well, see you later. Oh, uh, say hello to Opie and Aunt B for me, Andy. Anybody know that fellow? Not me. I never seen him alive. How'd he know about my rheumatism? Yeah, and how'd he know I was a deputy when I was all covered up with a sheet? Well, that's peculiar, ain't it? Mighty peculiar. I'm great mind to follow him away. I'm going with you, Andy. Here you are, Floyd. Go buy a barber book. <laughs> oh, hello, Mrs. Buntley. Hello. My, your twins certainly are cute. Thank you. Little Robert there is sleeping just fine, but William is wide awake, the little rascal. You know which one's Robert and which is William? Uh-huh. William has a little mole on his right ear, right? Yes. Good day, Mrs. Buntley. How did he... Oh, my. Andy, that fella, he knew which one... I, I know. It gets more peculiar all the time. I remember that because it was, it was pretty creepy for everybody in town. What this guy had done was he decided he wanted to, he never had a good uh, hometown. He had moved around a lot in his life, and he wanted to find a place to settle that could be his hometown. And he had heard about Mayberry, and he started taking the local paper. And for a long time, he had read every detail of the local paper about everybody in the town and everything that was... You know how the local papers, they, they print all the gossip, gossip in those local papers a lot of times. My hometown paper is still a lot that way. Uh, I don't get it anymore, but I used to get it for a while after I moved away. And, and I, you can keep up with everything going on in that town just by reading the local paper and that's what he had done and it really freaked everybody out in the town when he went to Mayberry and knew everything about everybody can you imagine how this woman felt there is no newspaper that's been reporting her life story there was no internet where he could google and find out about this woman and yet he knows some intimate details of her life and she's wondering who is this guy and so she says look at verse 19 sir I can see that you are a what? A prophet. That's the only explanation she could come up with. Only a prophet would know this stuff about me. Only a prophet would have this inside, detailed, intimate information about my life. He has to be a prophet. And she was partly right, wasn't she? Jesus was a prophet. He was more than a prophet, but he was a prophet. He's also a priest and a king, but she doesn't know all that yet. She went on because she's so piqued now with who this guy is. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. She's talking about a mountain near there called Gerizim. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. So she's still trying to, to find out a little more. If he's a prophet, then he can answer some questions for me that I've had for a while. Maybe he can clear some things up for me. And, and 
Jesus replied, Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and it has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. He says, a time is coming, and it's already here, where everything is changing radically about how you worship God. It's no longer about the place, the city of Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim. It's not about that. You see, God is spirit, and we must worship him in spirit and in truth. He wants us to worship him that way. And when you are baptized into Christ, he gives you his what? Spirit. So where can you worship God? How? His spirit, your body is a temple of his spirit. So where can you worship God? Everywhere. I know in the American church, it's just like it is in the European church. We still use the language. We still use the terminology. Are you going to worship today? Are you going to church today to worship? As if this building is the place and the only place where you can worship. And yet in Scripture, worship is your whole life. Of course, we should assemble together on the first day of the week. The Scripture teaches that. But if we limit our worship to that, we have so missed the point of the change Jesus is talking about here that he came to bring to how we worship the Father. You worship him at work. You worship him in your house. You worship him while you're parenting your kids and how you treat your spouse. You worship him by making choices to to control your anger out in the workplace, in the marketplace, and be a good example for him. You worship him by taking care of your families the way he's taught you to take care of your families. All of life becomes worship. That's what it means to worship in spirit and in truth. You honor your marriage vows. You, you, you train up your children the way God wants you to. You do those things that are acts of worship along the way. Well, this woman, the third thing we see here is she's still skeptical. But now her, her thirst for more has been peaked. She's thirsty for more, thirstier than she's ever been. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. See, now she's getting excited. Uh, the only person who would know this stuff, the only person who could usher in this kind of radical change for the worship of God would be the one she had heard was coming. Who was she always taught growing up was coming? The Messiah, the deliverer, the Savior. She says... I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus made a declaration that he had not made up until this time. Openly, specifically. Here's what he said. I, the one speaking to you, I am he. She had to have been just totally, totally had her mind blown when Jesus said, you know, the one you heard was coming, this Messiah that you've heard about your whole life. You're talking to him. I'm talking to you right here at the well right now. I am that Messiah. I am the one who knows these things, who's changing these things, who's transforming everything. I am that person that you're looking for, that all of your people have been looking for. She is totally caught off guard and surprised to hear this declaration. But I'm sure she's so excited with the possibility that maybe this really is the Messiah. I read recently of a 
a freshman at college who just got on campus and they had a week-long orientation. At the end of the week, they had this banquet, uh, orientation banquet, and all the new students were invited to be there and the faculty and staff was going to be there. And he, he was there at the party and this uh, elegant lady walked up to him and said, Hi, how are you? He said, fine. And she said, what do you think of everything in the school and everything? And he said, well, the school's okay. I really like it. The dorm's nice. But the college president, he's just, he's an old fuddy-duddy. He's old and out of date. He's got no clue what's going on. They should have replaced him a long time ago. The lady said, young man, do you know who I am? He said, no, who are you? She said, I am the president's wife. And he said to her, do you know who I am? She said, No. He said, good, and he took off. (laughs) See, when you discover who somebody is, it can change your view of everything, right? It can change how you interact and what you do from that point on. And this woman, as skeptical as she was, is now discovering who Jesus really is. He's given her evidence. He's given her support to help her believe it. It says just then, when she, he makes that bold statement, just then the disciples return and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. Why? Because he's a Jewish man. They're in Samaria. This is a Samaritan. That's why they're surprised that he's there talking to this woman, right? He says, why? None of them asked, though, what do you want or why are you talking with her? It says then in verse 28, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Can you see the transformation that is happening? She, she entered the conversation totally skeptical, not, not having any clue who this guy was. She didn't believe him at first when he talked about living water. And now she's at a point where she's thinking, this may just be the Messiah, the Savior. And she's so entr- and, uh, enchanted by the idea that this could be the Messiah that she leaves her water jar and takes off into town to tell everybody about what's happened. Now that day, what did she come out there to do? Just get water. She thought it was just another day. She's just doing the job that had to be done. It's no fun. You just go get water at the well. It's hot. But now... She forgets all about that water because she's thinking, if this guy really is the Messiah, then this living water thing is possible. This eternal life thing, that's what he could do if he's the Messiah. Everybody needs to know about this. Now, she's beginning to think maybe this could be the Messiah, but you know how you start believing something if you're not sure and you're still a little skeptical? What do you usually do? You ask some other people. I see it all the time on Facebook. People want recommendations. You know, I saw we got this new business in the area. Have you tried it yet? What do you think about it? They want friends to tell them what they think about it. Now, when you post that on Facebook, just know you're going to have a bunch of trolls tear it apart. That's what they do. That's their job. They're on there all the time trying to tear things down. So I wouldn't put much credibility in that. But if you've got a good friend that you know, that you trust, that might be a good person to talk to, to get some feedback from them. What do you think? I I think this could be the Messiah. What do you think? So she goes into town. She starts talking to everybody and, and asking, you know, what could this possibly be the guy? And then she doesn't stop with that. She says, come see this guy for yourself. Which leads to the final thing today, and that's this. She started out skeptical, but then she's so convinced that she's eager to share what she thinks she's discovered. says in verse 4, I mean verse 30 of John 4, 
The people she talked to, they came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know anything about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying it's still four months until the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Now, when Jesus says that, the crowds already started to come out of the town to him. They're wearing their robes, and you look out over it, and there's this moving sea of people coming toward Jesus. And he says, look, the fields are already white for the harvest. I think he is bringing some discipline and correction to those disciples. They had just come from that same town. How many people did they bring back to see Jesus? Zero. They went there and bought stuff. They had a chance to interact with people and talk to people, but they didn't do it, did they? Just like we walk by people all the time and we work alongside people all the time and we interact with people all the time and we're not bringing many of them to Jesus, are we? We're not even saying, come check it out. Especially people of different races and ethnicities and all of that, right? You see, these Jewish disciples had just gone into a Samaritan city to buy food. They probably had the attitude, we'll start doing God's work again after we get through Samaria. Get to the other side. Then we'll be the witnesses God wants us to be. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk to people and we'll help people. and we'll, Not while we're here, though. We're just passing through. And that's the way we treat the culture around us a lot of times. Not just by race, but by culture, too. These people don't believe like we believe. They don't act like we act. They don't talk like we talk. They don't, they're not following the same instructions on how to live life that we are. They're not honoring God the way we try to honor God. We're just kind of passing through. We just want to get to heaven. We just want to get to the other side. We want to slide in safely at the end. But if we really believe Jesus is who he says he is, don't you think everybody needs to come see? Don't you think everybody needs to be invited to come check him out for themselves to see if he could give them this water of life that wells up to eternal life in their lives? Jesus is teaching his disciples, I want to give this gift to everybody. God values every person equally in the sense that Jesus died for them all. I know there's all this debate about black lives matter, white lives matter, blue lives matter, all these lives matter. I agree, they all matter. And to God, they all matter equally. They all matter equally. I understand the need for some of those movements and some of I understand that, but I don't want you to understand that as the church, we need to understand that in God's eyes, every life matters to Him. And every life he wants to pour into that life, the water that wells up into eternal life. And he has put the church on the earth to be the conduit of that water. Look at the rest of the story. I love it. He continues to talk to them. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower, the reaper, may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows, another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you've not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you've reaped the benefits of their labor. 
In other words, I've been sending you out to do this work, and you just went to that town and came back with nothing. This woman went out and did the work for you when you didn't do it yourself. Then he said, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, for we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. I want you to notice that statement. We no longer believe just because of what you said. You know what that means? They started believing because of what she said. She had convinced some of them. That's why they came out there to see this guy. But after they heard him, they were even more convinced, they're saying. We know for sure this guy really is the Savior of the world. Maybe today you came in as a skeptic, and maybe you're still a skeptic. But here's the thing about what it means to be an honest skeptic. An honest skeptic will always continue to pursue the truth. Always. You won't just write it off and walk away from it. And here at Lakeshore, we want to help you through that process, even if you're still questioning things. And I'm not about to tell you we know all the answers because we don't. But we know Jesus, and we are convinced He is the Savior of the world. And we would love to introduce you to Him. Let's pray. Father, Father, we thank you that today we've been able to see an encounter in Scripture with this woman who had no clue at first who Jesus was, but who spent some time with Jesus, and Jesus spent time with her and gave her time and attention and love and care and teaching. And her skepticism began to fade, and her faith began to grow until the place that she was ready to bring others to find Jesus too. Father, I pray that whatever place we're in in our lives, whether we're skeptics or we're convinced and we're believers, but we would respond in the right way. We would continue to seek the truth. And when we are convinced, we would, we would gladly, gladly share Jesus with others and bring them so that they can find out for themselves that Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.